everyone, welcome to episode 59 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Rapple, and with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey Collins! What's up Chris, how you doing? I'm doing good, how was Richmond? Richmond was a lot of fun. I was super pumped to play Legacy again for the first time in a while. Mm-hmm. I did, you know, I did some testing on a couple of different archetypes leading up to it. I tested out Grixis Control and Death and Taxes and Blue Black Shadow. I think those were all kind of like the front runners for me in terms of what I wanted to play. I ended up settling on Grixis Control because I really wanted to play a deck that I didn't I didn't really want to play like a, a gotcha deck, like some sort of combo deck or something like that. I wanted to play some longer games, like have some control over what was happening. And Crixus Control also just seemed really, really powerful in the format. Kind of like immune to a lot of the like the hate angles that people are trying to establish. You know, you have plenty of basics to fetch out early to kind of avoid like the early wasteland shenanigans. You also mm-hmm. have like Colgan's commands to destroy like problematic permanents like Chalice and stuff like that. Um, so just like a lot of flexibility and really well positioned, I thought, in the metagame. So that's what I ended up bringing to the tournament. I don't know how much we want to go into all that now, or if we want to... <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, so yeah, then let's uh, let's go into how that actually went in a little bit. First, I guess we should thank our patrons. So our newest patrons, Randy and Dominic, thank you guys so much for uh, giving us your support. And uh, thanks to everybody else who hangs out in chat and lends us some support. Definitely can't thank you guys enough. We really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah. We will hopefully have some some stuff for you guys going forward, uh, especially once I get back and we can we can work together on on getting some newer patron rewards and stuff going on. Yeah, so before we get too much into GP Richmond, since that's going to be one of our topics for today, we're going to go into GP Richmond. Just you know, sort of go over how the tournament went. Hashtag GP Reed Duke, uh, all of that stuff, and then <laughs> we're yeah. going to look at sort of uh, what we are losing from this standard format. So, you know, I think going into spoiler season, it'll be really useful to to look at like what kind of holes we're creating in the format and that'll help inform our analysis of new cards. So we're going to spend some time looking at what's leaving and, and what that means for standard before going into some of the new spoilers we've got from Guilds of Ravnica. But first... Very exciting. Yeah, uh, super exciting. I think this is a rotation that we've been looking forward to for, uh, yeah, for, a for quite a while now. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but let's kick things off with a keeper mall. This one comes from our Patreon chat. This is from Andrew Smith. He's, this is from actual tournament. This is on the draw versus Tron and he's playing humans and we have mold to six and this hand is one land an unclaimed territory and we've got a vile, a noble hierarch, a Thalia Garden of Thraben, a Damping Sphere, and a Meddling Mage. And this is on the draw. Yeah, so this hand is, uh, honestly, I think really strong in this matchup in particular. But the kind of like the, the, the bigger question, instead of whether or not to keep it, is kind of like what to do in the first couple of turns. Because mm-hmm. we have we have our, our hate piece, essentially, in, in Damping Sphere, which is, you know, it, if, if you're backing it up with a reasonable clock, I think kind of lights out against Tron in this in, in this matchup. A lot of the time they're not going to be prepared with a like a nature's claim effect to destroy the Damping Sphere, so sometimes it's 
you know, they're kind of relying on getting down an Oblivion Stone and then popping it on their turn five and then mm-hmm. moving forward from there, they can kind of like put some explosive threats out on there. Yeah. But, as, you know, as long as you're you're disrupting that O-Stone line and, you know, making sure that you have a reasonable clock so that they can't like draw out of it and and do all that, uh, I think that this, you know, this hand is, is definitely going to be pretty strong and kind of for the for that reason you know we, we have the decision on whether or not we want to play vile or unclaimed or or noble hierarch on turn one yeah and since yeah. we're on the draw i like leaning towards you know guaranteeing us to be able to play the damping sphere on turn two um so that our opponent doesn't have the opportunity to land like turn three karn or turn three like worm coil engine or something like really problematic like that so i think i would lean towards you know leading with the noble hierarch playing the Damping Sphere on the next turn, and then following that up with Disruptive Pieces. Like, likely a, you know, like a Meddling Mage or something on Oblivion Stone, because that's kind of like what we identified as kind of like their only way out of the, the Damping Sphere. So, mm-hmm. And we are a little um, bit slow with this hand, so on the draw we're probably not going to be able to kill them before they could activate uh, uh, the Oblivion Stone on turn five. Right, so. yeah. You know, and... And the the plays are definitely going to vary based on, you know, if we scry, like, a land to the top, then we can lead, uh, or if, like, we draw a land on turn one, we can lead with Vile um, mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, get really explosive for, you know, if, if we if we have access to a land um, that we know that we're going to be able to play on turn two, then it opens us up to be able to lead on Vile, and that, you know, adds a lot of explosiveness to our, our draw, which is really good. Yeah, but you know, if you don't if you don't hit it and you like scry to the bottom and you draw non land for your draw for turn on turn one, I would definitely lean towards leading with noble hierarch just to make sure that we don't get troned out. Yeah, on turn three. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is definitely a six that you kind of have to keep. You've got a good sideboard card. Uh, you know, you do have that sort of awkward turn one choice potentially between noble and vile. One one question that I would have is like, like yes, I definitely think that you got to keep this on six but what if this is a seven like what if there's just a dead card like a second vial in the hand and this is a seven card hand then what are we thinking about a hand like this just what's the like raw power level of this hand in that that situation i guess the biggest problem is that it's not very fast we only kind of have like two two power creatures as like pressure right with this hand so that that has some dangers associated with it of like our opponent can just like either has an answer for the damage sphere or draws out of it or something along those lines to make our life really difficult, you know, or, you know, they just kind of like hit their six land drop and, and play a worm coil engine. And we have a bunch of two, two power creatures in play and can't really <laughs> attack through that. Right. Yep. So there are definitely dangers associated with it, but I think that because the disruptive elements here are powerful enough particularly in this matchup, then I I think it's justified to keep. Like, even if this had, like, another Vile and was a 7, I think I'd still keep it on the draw. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, good to um, good to hear yeah. that. This this is definitely one that I would not be certain what to do with if it were a 7-card hand, but I would not want to take this and go to 5, I don't think, so. Um, sure, yeah. You can definitely see the ways that this hand doesn't work out. Like, you know especially like if they do have a nature's claim or something then this hand kind of falls apart but you, you've already taken a mulligan you're giving yourself an opportunity to do, do an opportunity to do a powerful thing or at least shut down the powerful thing that they're trying to do um and and there are ways this can go really well for you there are ways it can go really badly but on, on balance i think you can't just throw this away um yeah for sure 
All right, so talk to me about GP Richmond. You were there. I watched the whole thing. I spent pretty much all of, you know, because of time zones, I spent all of, like, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings watching this. But I, uh... I heard, I heard that the coverage was pretty captivating. Yeah, I... I was a was little it was bit, it only because of Reed Duke's hair or was it was it more? I mean that helped. You know he's got those shiny <laughs> those, those shiny locks. Shiny uh, locks. They really come across very nicely on camera, and uh, yeah, I mean I was a little skeptical. Like I I thought it was a great idea at first when I heard, hey, you know we're going to be covering G- we're going to be covering Reed Duke for the entire tournament. You know, like it's a big risk. Because what if he does go, you know, 0-3 and, and right. all of a sudden, like, the plan is sort of out the window. And then, you know, I guess the fallback is now we've got Reed Duke commentating on all these matches, uh, which is totally fine. But, you know, this is something that they had never done before. And I really admire that they were willing to take this big risk and build a storyline around what's happening and the player of the year race and you know reed duke is just absolutely like one of the good guys of magic very easy to root for so they're building this storyline allowing you as a viewer to sort of become part of the experience which is something that star city games has done a really good job of is like you know, cultivating personalities, introducing them to the audience. Everybody knows who Tom Ross is. Everybody knows who Todd Stevens is. Everybody knows who, you know, you can turn on an SCG stream and you know the people that you're watching. And like, yeah, I do know the names of the pros on the Pro Tour and on GP coverage, but I I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of the time on those streams is spent more on the cards than on the players and i think this was a really nice and refreshing change i was a little skeptical at first when they did like the first round of it and it was just marshall sutcliffe with nobody else in the booth and he was just sort of whispering the play-by-play and there wasn't any back and forth so it was a little awkward at first but they started to work out some of the kinks as it went on and i think that it was pretty much just an unqualified success especially because reed obviously played well but also won a lot and played against just a murderer's row of excellent players so it was fortuitous circumstances but they they set themselves up to get lucky with this i think and it it worked out really nicely yeah i was i was so excited that they were willing to try this out it's pretty clear that coverage for tournaments has been needing some help it's been it's traditionally magic coverage has been pretty hit or miss and Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of stuff that you know they hadn't been doing and it's not really that accessible for like newer players so kind of like anything that they can try to do to to try to improve on the viewer experience yep i think it's just kind of like only upside right like the worst case scenario of this is that it like you know it wasn't that great or read scrubbed out of the tournament or whatever and then they could just easily from there fall back onto what they have been doing you know forever right so it's kind of like a a, you know a free shot right but you know really exciting to see it 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 turn out in such a such a good way uh you know i was there at the tournament but i i did kind of go back and watch some videos like the the vods of the coverage and i was really impressed with you know not only the whole experience of it all but like Reed Duke particularly getting to see him interact with his opponents and and see him very eloquently and clearly describe what's happening in in real time and all that stuff was was pretty awesome and crazy and really cool. 
Uh, I hope that they keep on doing stuff like this. The problem that I'm seeing, though, is that there are, you know, nobody else's Reduke, yeah. right? So it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be ever quite as good as tournaments featuring Reduke. But there are definitely, there is definitely like a short list of players that I would love to follow. Right. Right, if we saw Jerry or LSV or, you know, there's a there's definitely a list of, of, of players who could pull off a, a similar thing. You know, some more of the, the right, well-liked yeah. good guys of Magic, uh, they could definitely do something like this with. Yeah, LSV in particular, I think, would be would be a good good one to follow. It would be interesting to see uh, how seriously he takes it and everything, because <laughs> he's known to be a bit of a troll sometimes. Right, but right. I think that would also be a cool element to follow and watch, and... You know, just kind of like see the enjoyment because LSV clearly loves playing the game. And, you know, I think that that would come across in watching and listening to him playing the matches and everything. So, yeah. So, yeah, really, really excited about uh, the, you know, them exploring new, a new space with with this coverage stuff. And the, like the table mics were really cool. It was really, it was really awesome to see what was, to hear what was going on. I mean... This worked out really nicely because Reed played against Yuya and Saito. Uh, I think like Ross Miriam was his like round five opponent and it only got harder from there. It was like Ross and Yuya and Saito, Saito and Andrew Beckstrom. So it was all great players and hearing the, the yeah. interaction was really nice. Like you got to hear Saito slap himself in the face. Like, uh, like that was great. <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean, it like Reed really was a, a big part of the key to pulling it off you know like after he lost the match that like that that likely kicked him out of top eight contention the next minute he was in the booth and then we see a a turn one goblin lackey and and he goes oh this is a treat and he was just so excited to completely in earnest he was very excited to watch a goblins player who had made a deep run into the tournament and was live for top eight like he was very excited to see this so that kind of energy and enthusiasm is is really contagious and you know even though you could hear like i mean i think this was a good thing that you could like hear some of the emotions some of the exhaustion in his voice but it really kind of puts you into the tournament and i think that you know it was a lot less sterile than coverage can sometimes be and i I think embracing this Mm -hmm. sort of thing however they they managed to do it in the future but i think this is a good starting place for for future developments but you know it, it i do want to point out the just the stamina that it takes to do something like reed did yep. you know i was there at the tournament and i was watching him and he was always doing something he just almost never really had a break right he was either playing or commentating or commentating a you know non-live match he just was like running all around i didn't like i don't know when he had time to eat right during the right. day it was just go, 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 go. And that looks really tough. And I think that the end result was really, really, really good for the, all of the viewers. But he had to be exhausted after the weekend. Oh, I'm um, sure. And and it, you know, it may be something where they need to pull back a little bit. And, like, if they're going to follow a player through a PT or something like that, then they don't need to have them engaged as much on coverage or anything. But if we just, like, we're following one player for a certain period of time and, and really get the crowd invested in their results i mean i I think this is like probably the better way to cover a draft is watch a player draft listen to them about their choices you know like before the draft talk to them about what they think about the format and why they would make certain decisions after the draft ask them about their deck watch them play three matches with the deck and then you actually got to watch a whole draft and that's 
probably, you know, that's not going to take as much energy as like, you know, running Reed Ragged for for the entire weekend <laughs> right. probably did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> running Reed Ragged. I love it. Um, yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I, I'd love to see this moving, f- like, uh, more moving forward with some, some other of, like, the big names in, mm-hmm. you know, who are, who are playing Magic right now actively. But, you know, this, I think this event in particular just had so many things going for it. Reed Duke is kind of just, like, good enough to, that we know that he's going to do well in a format like Legacy and everybody loves him and all this, all that stuff. Sure. So we'll see if we can, we can do it with some other people as well yeah and it really cemented the the like storyline of the player of the year race like we spent two whole days watching reed try to pick up an extra couple of points to to catch up Mm -hmm. and then that made seth manfield's top eight the next day feel much more relevant you realize like what the whole you know purpose of that what the what that accomplishment really means uh and so you know that that's good that gets the audience really into it. it certainly got me into it and you know, anytime that they can they can really push a storyline is is going to be good for the the um, the audience. Yep. So that's good, yep. definitely. So how was Bland Legacy? Uh, how did that go? Yeah. So so my tournament um, kicked off with me getting paired against Zan in the first round that we played, <laughs> and it was me playing Grixis Control against Zan playing. He was playing Infect at the mm-hmm. tournament. And I think it's a pretty good matchup for me, and I definitely should have won, given, you know, what ended up happening. But I kind of ran into this interesting problem in that match against Sand, where all of my testing had was through Magic Online, and I was playing this kind of, like, slow, grindy deck. So I wasn't really prepared to, or experienced enough playing in, like, live matches with this deck to, like, appropriately manage my time so in our game one it went really long and i ended up losing that that game one that went long uh because he got out a it's the one mana one one that you can sack a land to give your guy shroud oh um um the the turbo depths one sylvan safekeeper sylvan safekeeper yeah 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 so he had one of those out and just a bunch of lands and i just like could never get rid of his unblockable guy Mm -hmm. But the game went really long, and I was taking my time on all my decisions because I was, you know, like brainstorming and pondering and having to set things up and all this crazy stuff that you know legacy is involved yeah. in. And then I was able to win game two relatively quickly, but we only had like seven or so minutes left for game three. And in game three, I felt really rushed because the only way that I was going to win was you know through kind of a longer game, right? And I got really far ahead on board and got a bitter blossom down. But then, kind of like the crux of the whole game came down to me overloading his Sylvan Safekeeper by just like throwing a bunch of removal spells at his guys so that he had to sacrifice all of his lands and, and, you know, didn't have access to any more mana, right? So that I could like effectively race and not have to worry about pump spells. But I I kind of misclicked, not really misclicked, it was, it was a mental thing. I, I targeted the wrong... Uh, I targeted his Sylvan Scapekeeper with my last removal spell instead of his Dryad Arbor, which was his last land. Mm. So I essentially made a classic mistake of giving Zan the option of which creature he wanted to lose instead of forcing him to lose his only land in the Dryad Arbor. So I dreadboard his Sylvan Safekeeper, and he was just like, okay, and he bends it, and he still has a land open, and I was like, oh no, if he draws a pump spell here, I'm just dead. 
And he did. He drew he drew a pump spell that pumped his unblockable guy for a lethal infect. But I think that, you know, I wouldn't have made that mistake had I better managed my time starting from game one and just, like, given myself enough time to to think through decisions into the game three. Because I was definitely felt, like, really rushed to be able to finish on time in game mm-hmm. three. So I think that that's kind of like, you know, I've been noticing more and more pitfalls of primarily testing on Magic Online. And I think that we talked about this last week as well. Yep, I've been feeling this too, absolutely. Yeah, but it, it was such a clear example of like, you know, wow, I, I didn't have any experience with this ki- with this type of time management until the first round of the Grand Prix, and that felt really bad. So, you know, definitely definitely something good to take away from that. From So I lost to Zan, and from there I didn't lose for a while and was like 5-1, and one, I think, and then I drew against Reanimator. Oh boy. <laughs> Probably another time management thing. But that one felt kind of less under my control. I won game one against Reanimator by beating him down with Baleful Strixes, and that just took forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we kind of had a, another long game two where he ended up... We ended up just kind of like trading off all of our resources, but I like my deck couldn't close. It didn't have like a good way to finish out the game. And he eventually was able to draw into you know, enough reanimator spells to overload the interaction that I had in my hand, and then he was able to, you know, land a threat and kill me with it. And then game three as well, we kind of, like, got down to this point where it was kind of like the same point of game two where we were, we kind of both had nothing and we're just trying to, you know, draw a way to kill each other, right? And, and the draws that I'm looking for are, like, you know, like, hopefully I can find a Gurmag Angler or something, but but more realistically, it's going to be, like, a Bitter Blossom or something that takes forever to yeah. kill him. And, you know, I think that I was pretty, f- you know, I, I had a decent amount of interaction to to survive in that game three, but the game was nowhere near resolved, right? And and I think that either one of us could have won from there. But, you know, we just went to time, and we were both still dirtling, and, and we continued to dirtle for the, all of our extra turns, and it just, like, wasn't anywhere near finished. So we ended up drawing that one. So on paper, it definitely sounds weird that I drew against Reanimator, but it, playing the games out, it, it kind of made sense that something like that could happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of funny how grindy Legacy is. I mean, it's a format where sometimes you have to have Force of Will on turn one, but it's also a format where, like, we watched Reed Duke go to time in the last round of the tournament. The, yeah, for sure. It's there's, there's a lot of decision points. And you know what? Like, part of this is also I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second and say that fetch lands are awful. And, like, <laughs> fetch lands, yeah. The, the match that. Yeah, I mean, shuffling takes time out of the event, it, you know, it or does. Out, of, out of the round, right? It, it absolutely does. And, you know, the, a bunch of these. A bunch of these matches that go to time, you'd have another six, seven minutes to play matches if if you weren't just fetching. So, you know, each player fetched four times in each game. Like, that's a lot of shuffling. Right. Uh, and even yeah. if you try to shortcut through it and stuff, you know, you're like sometimes you fetch before... I mean, this is a big problem in modern with like serum visions. Like you have to fetch before you cast your serum visions. At least in Legacy, right. you tend yeah. to cast your cantrip and then fetch so you can like pass the turn while you're shuffling but you know a lot of times just your sequencing you have to shuffle and then brainstorm again or whatever and it it just takes yeah. a lot of time i'm not a big fan or even just like a you know casting a turn one ponder off a of fetch land is yeah fetch find the land shuffle shuffle present they have to shuffle shuffle 
now I can resolve my ponder. And you can't do anything while I'm doing that because I'm making decisions that you don't want me to see while I'm thinking about my ponder, right? Right, you can't shortcut um, that. So yeah. you're just kind of like stuck, right, with the, with that. So, yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And another part of the problem, which is unfortunate, is that a lot of players don't recognize the you know the total amount of time it takes to, to shuffle. So I, I definitely had a lot of opponents that I had to remind... Just like, hey, I realize that you're shuffling my deck, but I, I need to go ahead and ponder so that we can move on with the game. And they're just kind of <laughs> taking their time, shuffling and shuffling and shuffling. And I'm like, oh, please. <laughs> um, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I watched several players, like, this is slightly different from what you're talking about. I watched several players, like, pile shuffle on camera, and I just wanted to be like, you realize, mm. like, this is often, like, a turn 15 format, right? So I, we just... I think if you're, like, being a conscientious player, like, you don't have time to pile shuffle your deck in this format. Yeah, no. I, I definitely have noticed that more and more lately, where, especially, like, I had an opponent, we were we were going to game three with, like, six minutes left or something, and they just started pile shuffling their deck, and I was like, we don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I've I've been more proactive in, like, mentioning to my opponents. Because I think part of it is, like, a, you know, a, a lack of information mm-hmm. problem. And I think that, you know, that's slowly getting fixed. But a lot of people just don't know that pile shuffling doesn't declump your lands or whatever they believe, right? Right. So I've been more proactive in, like, if whenever I see my opponent pile shuffle. And a lot of the time they, like pile shuffle and then immediately like give an excuse for it they like start pile shuffling and they're like sorry man you know i i we that game went really long and our lands you know we're all clumped together and stuff i think you just call a judge when somebody says that right like well okay well that's a whole other that's a whole other discussion because they're not trying um, to to they're clearly not trying to pull one over on you or anything but like it should be pretty clearly explained that this is not like you are not allowed right. to randomize and that's, that's your that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make point. is that yeah. I uh, I've been pretty proactive in just like telling them that hey do you know that pile shuffling is actually the least efficient way to randomize your deck it doesn't do any more than just a you know a, a one mash shuffle right that you can do in in five seconds and you know I've I've been kind of like kindly explaining that to my opponents yeah. Yeah, definitely no need to be like aggressive about it or anything because it's usually just coming from a place of not knowing very well right yeah and i i honestly i think that that's just all it is is that you know not everybody is is 100 on the pulse of of the the nitty-gritty details of tournament magic all the time you know so sure. so it, you know it makes sense that they might not know that or whatever but i i think that you know and and hopefully this is something that that more people will do is just like you know just let your opponent know that pile shuffling is actually only really productive if you want to count your deck and honestly even then there are just faster ways of counting your deck than pile shuffling it feels like yeah so um but you know that's just kind of like another part of the problem that makes these matches take a long time especially when you're shuffling so often is that you know some sometimes people just kind of aren't really conscientious of the fact that it's it's eating up a lot of time of the, the time around yeah yep well hopefully we get the word out a little bit <laughs> via this podcast episode but uh yeah tell well, tell, yeah. tell your friends now that we've ranted on it for a little <laughs> bit <laughs> yeah um, for sure so you know just to talk a little bit about the decks that that did well grixis control did quite well death shadow definitely still very powerful you know these blue black decks just have lots of really good cards but at towards the end of the tournament we saw kind of the the swords to plowshares decks 
pull away a little bit. Uh, Kunio won with Miracles, uh, another Miracles deck in top eight. Joe Lissette with Stoneblade in top eight. And I think that may be just because the the winning decks were so full of these blue-black decks that, you know, like Swords to Plowshare versus Gurmag Angler or Swords to Plowshares versus Death Shadow is just so good that in the last couple of rounds, uh, I think these Swords to Plowshares decks really did a, a, a good job of converting. So that's kind of interesting to see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Kind of like looking at a snapshot of like all of the top tables in the last couple of rounds... Blue black and Grixis were were definitely everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it definitely makes sense that these plow decks ended up doing well. I do want to give a shout out to Kyle Miller. So Kyle is a local to Durham here. Uh, he plays at Atomic Empire. Uh, he's one of the kind of the OG legacy guys back from when Atomic Empire was sci-fi genre. Mm. He made top eight of the Legacy Grand Prix with Grixis Control, and he's kind of like always been one of, if not the best, legacy players here at Atomic Empire, and we've got a lot of really, really strong legacy players, so I'm not, not surprised at all to see him do well, but uh, really happy to really happy to see that. Yeah, congratulations so, to him. to Kyle. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I, I was going to say, uh, I, I, like, I don't think Miracles is, like, favored against Grixis Control, uh, but I think it's, it's certainly favored against Death Shadow, and one of the cool things about Miracles is it runs one dual land in it, so, I mean, number one, the deck is like yeah. a lot easier to put together. You know, it, it costs about as much as a, like blue-white control in modern. It's pretty much a lot of the same cards. Um, right, right. And uh, also it gets to run back to basics, which just looked absolutely insane every time we saw it on camera. So, yeah, that card is is quite good right now. Yeah, ba- yeah, for sure. I Even in the matchups that traditionally run a lot of basic lands like death and taxes and stuff mm-hmm. the card is still very very good because it you know it turns off their ports it turns off their uh caracas it turns off a lot of a lot of the cards that can be really annoying for you um like as the control player right yeah so like even in the matchups where you're expecting to see a lot of basic lands it can still be really really strong so if it's good like even then then it, it makes sense that it was really strong this weekend yeah yeah and in the finals you know against lands which should be a tough matchup, but just yeah. getting that back to basics in play shut down pretty much all of uh, his opponent's lines. So it, it just gives this deck an incredible dimension. And by building your deck around it, you make yourself almost complete. There's one land in the deck that can be wastelanded. Like, that's awesome in Legacy. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, for sure. I'm a fan. And that's definitely one of the elements that I really enjoyed out of this Grixis deck is that against the wasteland matchups, you just had the opportunity to fetch out a bunch of basics. Yeah. And Miracles is clearly much better at doing that, but it's, you know, it just kind of goes to show how powerful that being able to do that is in this format. Yep. Yep. I, I think it's a, a huge, you know, like one of the the key parts of any magic format is play the threats or play the cards that your opponent's interaction lines up badly against. So if people are playing a bunch of like fatal pushes and, and stuff to beat an aggressive red deck, then you that's why we want Hazarets or we want Chandra's or whatever to get around that sort of interaction. I think kind of a similar thing with your land bases and Legacy. One of the main ways that they're trying to interact with you is wastelanding you to death, and they can't do that if you don't let them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So speaking of Hazaret, I guess uh, there was also a standard GP, which, uh, you know, five black red decks in the top eight, 
not super surprising at this point. Seth's deck was pretty clearly constructed for the mirror. It was uh, a Cinder Baron's version of Black Red that had Vraska's Contempts and no one drops at all. Just very, very mid rangey, couple of Karns. I think this was a Brad Nelson special, but, you know, ended up losing the mirror in the top eight. Um, semifinals. Semifinals, or- yeah. Quarter finals? Semifinals, yeah. You know, not too much exciting to report about this tournament. You know, plenty of people championing blue black as kind of a way to have probably an advantage against pretty much every deck trying to beat black red and being like even or just slightly behind against black red, but having a, a decent sideboard plan and that sort of thing. You know, once you get to Torrential Gear Hulk, you're beating pretty much everybody. But yeah, this standard format is is rotating in a month so we should probably mostly talk about that definitely down to transition into into you know what's what's happening with rotation yeah yeah um but a quick congratulations to ben nicklich for top 16ing this um with you know black red aggro of course (laughs) yeah yeah for sure uh even he couldn't be convinced to pick up a uh control deck of some stripe in this format so yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if if even Ben Nicolich isn't playing control and is just playing black red, it's definitely kind of telling what's <laughs> what's happening with the format. Yep. But soon, that will not be the case. So I think you know, I want to approach this. We don't know what's in Guilds of Ravnica. We got a couple of spoilers. We'll talk about at the end of this episode. But I think that talking about what we are losing because we are losing four sets and a lot of the most powerful cards in standard. And I think that's a good way to start talking about what's going to happen going forward. Um, so I've got a whole list of important sort of packages, and we might not get to them all, but there's a couple of obvious ones uh, that we definitely want to hit on. Um, I don't know if you want to kick us off or if you want me to start with some of the stuff that I've been thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that going over a lot of these packages is actually going to be really helpful to kind of like understand what what we're losing. So I'm definitely down to do that. Yeah, um, so the, you know, the most obvious thing is the Red Mythic package, but I think I want to actually start by talking about the land situation, because I think that's the most important thing for a standard format, is what can we do with the lands that are available to us? And Yeah, and that's, that, honestly, that's like a really underrated element of what happens with standard rotations, mm-hmm. is that... Um, it might be kind of hard to to realize this kind of like you know so late in a in a in a standard format, but the lands really do define which color pairs you play. If you remember, kind of like back when we were we had some like tokens decks to to experiment with. This is like before Goblin Chain Warlord, of course. Like the green white builds of like the token lists and all these other like you know green black builds as well. Some of these decks wanted to be able to play Llanowar Elves, but if you weren't uh, an enemy color pair, you just couldn't really afford to play Llanowar Elf because all of the turn one dual lands came to play tapped for mm-hmm. all of the uh, all of the allied colored pairs. Yep. So it's really, really important to take a look at what our dual lands look like to define which color pairs you should expect to see in played in like traditional standard decks moving forward. Yeah, yeah, and that Llanowar Elves example I think is is absolutely perfect because after Mono Green Snoppy became sort of you know one of the decks of standard, there were only two options for splashing. You could only splash black or blue, and nobody considered splashing red or white 
uh, even though they might have some things, you know, maybe the deck could have used a braid or something like that. But nobody even considered that because the deck relies on having maximizing its turn one Llanowar Elves draws and sacrificing that weakens the deck too much. So we only really saw green-black, green-blue decks that featured Llanowar Elves. Those sort of like green-white tokens decks just completely died out because they just weren't able to do the most powerful thing, which is play an Accelerant on turn one. So uh, going forward, we are losing the Cycling Lands and we are losing the Kaladesh Fastlands. So one cycle each of Allied Lands and Enemy Colored Lands. And what we're getting in replacement is we're going to end up eventually with all of the Ravnica Shocklands, but right now we're only getting half of them. So for three months until uh, Ravnica Allegiance comes out, all we're going to have are Overgrown Tomb, Steam Vents, Sacred Foundry, Watery Grave, and Temple Garden. So green-black, blue-red, red-white, blue-black, and green-white. And we're not going to have the lands for red black uh, we're not gonna have the line for blue white we're not gonna have land for blue green red green or white black and what that means to me is i am not excited to play any of those combinations for the next three months in fact i think that we might kind of be getting a break from teferi for a little bit because it's just going to be really hard you know we're gonna have a lot of tools for, you know, blue-white has a lot of its cards still, but it's very difficult to run a cancel and settle the wreckage in the same deck if you've only got four dual lands. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if people try to, like, just have a small splash on on white if they play control deck in order to play Teferi. Mm-hmm. Like, if we have the, um, the black-blue dual lands... Which I think that we are going to have. Yeah, we do have the blue-black uh, dual land. So it might be easier to do some sort of splash. But that, like any sort of like three-color deck, might also just be like too far out of the realm for this early on in the rotation. Yeah, it's going to be a test to figure out how to build mana bases. And I think there are some three-color combinations that are supported because, like, the shock lands are best friends with the check lands and we've got the whole 10 check lands in standard so i think that there are definitely going to be ways to build pretty complex mana bases um you know like uh even with just the five lands that we're getting you can probably build a grixis mana base because we've got the blue black shock land and we've got the blue red shock land and then we've got the the check lands to fill in from there and that's probably gonna be a pretty playable mana base that that is encouraging you to be more centered on blue than the other colors but that's okay and so you know we may be able to build nickel bolus decks going forward um, but I think paying attention to these lands, you know, I, I think it's going to be really tough to build, you know, red-green monsters. I, I think it's going to be tough to to play, you know, Regisaur Alpha until we get actual stomping ground. Because it's just going to be really hard to play Llanowar Elves. But because we have Temple Garden and because we have Overgrown Tomb, I'm probably going to start brewing some Llanowar Elves decks that are green-black and green-white. Because... They should have, uh, as long as you can run enough forests, and they've got four duels that can cast turn one Llanowar Elves, that's that's good. That's what we've had so far, uh, having Llanowar Elves in standard, and I think we could probably make it work going forward from here. Yeah, 
I definitely agree. And it'll be interesting to see kind of like how this pans out and which color combinations people are going to lean towards playing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the guilds that are in Guilds of Ravnica are going to have a huge boost, uh, even disregarding any of the spells that are getting printed. So definitely one of the most important things stepping into this new format. Probably the second most important thing is that we're kind of killing off red-black. This is not going to be the deck of choice going forward. We are losing Glorybringer, Chandra, and Hazaret as kind of the important top-end cards. And then we're also losing plenty of the important lower-end stuff. There's no Bomat Courier, there's no Soulscar Mage, there's no Karizev, there's no Pia Nalar, there's no Heart of Kirin, there's no Abrade. The most of the cards in the deck are just not in standard anymore, which uh, I think most people are going to be relieved at that. Yes, yeah. It's it's kind of like had its time in the sun, and, and now it's time to move on and and hopefully have a fresh standard format. Yeah. So I don't I don't think anybody's going to be particularly sad about that. And I think the fact that Goblin Chainwiller was such a big part of the deck, and there were so many different builds of the deck that you could play with Chainwiller in it, from like a Flame of Keld mono red deck all the way up to a Seth Manfield like three Cinder Barons and two Vraska's Contempt deck, and that just pushed so many one toughness guys out of the format now i'm sure that chain whirler is still going to be a presence but you're going to be much more limited to a pretty aggressive red deck that kind of tops out at chain whirler Uh, and that's going to be a more limited part of the format i assume at least yeah yeah i definitely definitely agree with you there that means that one toughness guys and token strategies are going to be a lot more attractive going forward yeah, you know, Chain Whirler will still exist, but it's not like it's, you know, so easily supported by all these powerful mythics anymore. Right, and the red duels that we're getting are, you know, in this in Guilds of Ravnica, are the Boros Land and the, the Izzet Land. And neither of those, you know, who knows what cards we actually get, but neither of those guilds seem particularly suited to take advantage of Chain Whirler enough that they would warp their mana bases so heavily to play it the way that red black decks have so far um yeah yeah so it seems likely that the chain whirler decks are going to be you know decks that have gitu lava runner in them so that's a much more that's a much smaller slice of the pie yeah we i mean we might see more of like that really low to the ground style of like gitu lava runner Mm -hmm. you know wizards lightning mono red decks yep but definitely, like, the the more oppressive, bigger red mythics, you know, we're, we're not going to have access to those anymore. Right, and that makes, like, sideboarding against these decks much more possible. Like, if you know that—if I know that people are going to show up with a bunch of black-red, I I can tilt my deck to try to beat it, but because it's such a mid-rangey deck that then sideboards into a bunch of duresses if they need to, it's so hard to just say, I'm going to do this, and this is my powerful strategy in this matchup. If my opponents are going to be playing a bunch of Gitu Lava Runners, I can just play a bunch of Moments of Craving, and that really is going to adjust that matchup. So for beating Goblin Jane Whirler, like this is going to be a format where it's much more obvious what you can do to do that. So... You know, for better or for worse, there will be decisions you can make that are kind of obvious to take the Chain Whirler decks into account. Yeah, agreed. In general, we're losing a lot of the powerful removal spells from the format, especially versatile early game stuff. So we're losing a Braid, we're losing Magnus Bray, 
we're losing fatal push. So, you know, black doesn't... That's a big one. Yeah, that is a really big one. Black doesn't have, like, a clear one-mana removal spell. We're losing Harness Lightning, which, you know, sees significantly less play nowadays, but was an important part of the format. We're losing Unlicensed Disintegration. Uh, so the stuff we're left with is kind of a lot more... A little more narrow, a little less powerful. Uh, we've still got, like, Vraska's Contempt, but... For several different reasons, I think Vraska's Contempt is going to be significantly less important going forward. Uh, the red burn spells are, you know, the face burn spells. So that's going to encourage, you know, aggressive red decks to adopt them. Uh, you know, mid-rangey red decks are much more interested in the versatility of a card like a Braid or Harness Lightning than in the ability to go face in a card like Lightning Strike. So that's going to encourage you to build your deck with an aggressive slant if you're using red removal as your your removal base and you know the lack of a braid i think is going to open up you know like we can play treasure map now if we want we can play gilded lotus if we want so that's kind of cool yeah definitely a lot of artifacts that you know were kind of like oppressed by a braid might you know we might start to see those like you know come out and, and get tried again at least yeah um so it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of like which artifacts never got the opportunity to have their time in the sun. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Panharmonicon was a, a, a Kaladesh block. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, Godfair's Gift is also... That's Amonkhet. Is that rotating out? That's Amonkhet, yeah, or Hour of Devastation. But that's probably good. I think without a braid in the format, probably... Uh, yeah, that, that card could be a little too too much. It probably would have been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are losing a lot of those powerful artifacts, especially vehicles, where the the Kaladesh artifacts that really made a splash, I guess, and also all of the Paradoxical Outcome deck. But, you know, we are losing vehicles, so that was kind of a... You know, the, the creature decks are losing a lot of the ways that they had to sort of be nimble around removal spells, which, you know, we're also losing a lot of the powerful removal at the same time. You know, like the green decks don't have Ronus anymore. They don't have Heart of Kirin. They don't have Ether Sphere Harvester. Uh, they just have Guys, which is kind of awkward. That 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 means that you can't do as much to play around Wrath of God effects or tar- even just target removal or anything like that. So what that means is, I kind of if I'm building a a, a green deck, I'm looking for cards that might have been overlooked from sets that are already in standard or cards that are being printed in new Ravnica that kind of give a similar dimension that vehicles or, or gods gave so that a wrath of God doesn't just completely ruin my day. And whether that's like Manlands or, or something planeswalkers, uh, I, I think that's the kind of card that I'm going to be on the lookout for. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I think that we probably will get something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll it'll be interesting to see kind of like what design space they decide to, you know, try to utilize that in. Yeah, definitely. I uh, heard a couple of people talking about, hey, maybe Weatherlight is playable now because between no Abrade and you know no better vehicle, at least that we've seen so far, uh, if your deck has enough hits for it, it could actually be a powerful way to avoid Wrath effects and get some you know some of that vehicle effect those hasty hits those card that card advantage that it gives you so that's that's kind of an interesting weird one to look out for in a lower powered format 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, that could be that could be very interesting for sure. Yeah, I mean, we don't um, have we don't have scrap heap scrounger anymore, so I don't know how we're crewing three in in the future. But <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, we do lose a lot of those really efficient, low casting cost, high powered creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we're also losing Bomet Courier, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I mean. That was definitely kind of the least egregious of the very powerful red cards. You know, it was a card that made, at least in my opinion, like lots of interesting decisions and game states and was a cool weapon against control decks that, a type of weapon that we had never seen before out of the red decks. And I'm a big fan of it. But, you know, don't be too concerned for Bomat Courier. He might be leaving standard, but I'm... I'm pretty sure that we're going to be seeing more and more of Bomat Courier in Eternal formats. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be good. He's he's got plenty of messages to deliver still. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've got mail. <laughs> you've got mail, and it's a bunch of lightning bolts. Right. <laughs> Blue black midrange has achieved a little bit of a renaissance in past couple of weeks. Uh, you know, like uh, Emma Handy, Jadine Comparins have been championing it. I know Autumn Burchett won. English Nationals with it, and then Mike Sigrist made the finals of, of Richmond with it. Uh, so uh, that that deck has been coming back. However, it will disappear almost entirely with rotation. Uh, I think, like, Vraska's Contempt is basically the only card left in that deck <laughs> after these two sets leave. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah, just looking through this list, like, most of the important cards. Glintsleaf Siphoner is gone, Champion of Wits is gone. Torrential Gear Hulk is gone, Lilian is gone, Fatal Push, Sensor, Doomfall, Supreme Will. Everything that made this deck good except for like Argyll's Bloodfast. But Demir is one of the five guilds in Guilds of Ravnica, so there may be something, but it's certainly not going to be the like Glintsleaf Siphoner Ether Hub type of Black Midrange deck that we've seen for a while. So it's gonna have to find its own character going forward if if that's gonna be a, a deck. Yeah. For sure. It's going to need to have a whole new suite of, you know, powerful, you know, mythic rares to kind of like, you know, turn it back into the the mid-range powerhouse that it, it, it is right now. Right. And the fact that there, and I can't imagine there's going to be a card that's quite on the same level as the Scarab God, where if you untap with it, it's, it's done. So not having that as the like end game goal is really going to sort of change the approach of the deck, I think. Uh, it you know of those colors in general they just don't have that like nonsense haymaker that invalidates the the previous you know several turns right the cards are what kind of like shape the game plans for these decks mm-hmm. and um, new cards will mean new game plans yeah losing torrential gear hulk is a really interesting one you know some of the cards that are really good now are going to still be legal and i think are just going to be worse uh, and i think vraska's contempt is a big loser most likely of this rotation because a lot of the a lot of the cards that it was kind of like the only good answer to are, are rotating out yeah we nobody's playing hazarettes anymore that demand it uh nobody's playing you know scarab god or ronus there aren't these things that are just indestructible or unkillable and must be exiled it's almost just rekindling phoenix that says do you have a Vraska's contempt and that means it's much less important to be to have to be able to say yes to that question. That by itself lowers the value a little bit. Still probably a powerful card because it's a versatile answer. But also the losing 
of Torrential Gear Hulk means that you have a little bit less... You kind of got bonus points for putting the four of Rask's Contempts in your deck if you also had a couple of Torrential Gear Hulks because that play was just overwhelmingly powerful. And since that's not something you're building towards anymore, it is, again, you know, that's going to notch down the value of Rask's Contempt a little bit. So I do not think that we're going to be in a four of Rask's Contempt deck uh, four of Rast's Contempt format going forward. It's possible, but it, it seems unlikely to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Rask's Contempt was kind of like the perfect answer for, you know, for everything in the format as it exists right now. But we just have so little information about what that format's going to look like moving forward. Right. And because Rask's Contempt was such a, you know, specific style of answer, you know, you, you gained life, it exiled, it did a lot of really key things that were really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who knows if, if the extra mana that the Rasky's Contempt will cost uh, will be better than just, like, murder moving forward. We might just be transitioning back into, like, a murder format. Yeah. Yeah, or if we get, you know, like, that killing Planeswalkers part is often pretty important. So if we got, like, a Hero's Downfall kind of card, then that might be sure. just an upgrade. I mean, who knows what we're going to get. But, yeah, that, that exiling clause that was so important is just a lot less important now. And that also means that if people are playing fewer of Rask's Contempts, then that might just make Rekindling Phoenix a lot better. So, you know. I was going to bring up Rekindling Phoenix, yeah. Um, that's kind of like one of the cards that you, you really need a Rask's Contempt to answer that is not rotating out and is definitely strong enough to continue to see play in the format. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, if, if we get to a place where it's just like a bunch of creature decks bashing stuff, bashing threats into each other and like backing them up with Planeswalkers... You can't really ask for a better format of play than Rekindling Phoenix. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, like cards like that that seem to get better. Uh, we can play four mana, four toughness creatures again, right? So that's kind of exciting. I yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. <laughs> no, um, no cut. The green decks, I feel like continue are going to continue to be pretty strong. Um, Steel of Champion seems really well positioned right now. Right, based on the little information that we have. Yeah, like what answers it like on on curve like cast down and question mark kind of uh right obviously yeah, we're I getting mean, a whole a set lot of unknowns but, there for sure but but yeah in general i mean two mana the turn two five four was already very hard to answer with all of the good answers that we had and it, it's likely to be one of the premier threats going forward despite mono green losing some of its backup um but yeah no chandra and no glory bringer and to a lesser extent, no cut to ribbons. You know, like, maybe we can even cast Shalai these days. Uh, especially since we can play Llanowar Elves with it, with Temple Garden. That could easily yeah, be a deck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could definitely see that. Having access to Temple Garden, and and based on a lot of what I'm seeing of what's rotating out, it seems like uh, green-white w- would be a, definitely an interesting place to, um, to start paying attention to. Yeah, it's got a lot of powerful cards. Like, we saw at the very beginning of like dominaria standard like these shalai lyra decks and that could easily be a place to go uh going forward from here yeah yeah i definitely agree or or you know just some like tokeny i i think tokens might be i i think the chain whirler decks obviously made tokens completely unplayable if chain whirler goes from 40 percent of the format to 15 percent of the format uh i think that the, the 
token strategies that we have access to now might just be extremely powerful. And both red yeah, white. I mean, you know, in in a vacuum, they kind of always have been extremely powerful, mm-hmm. but they've just been so repressed by Chain Whirler that it's just not even worth, you know, trying. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, if if that card just doesn't see play anymore, uh, I could definitely see see these having a, a really big resurgence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, powerful anthem effects like like Pride of Conquerors, uh, Radiant Destiny, Benelish Marshall. Uh, there's just definitely an opportunity for these things going forward. And I I know that uh, heroic reinforcements I think is actually a pretty busted card, so we may see some sort of red white aggressive token strategy ab- abusing that going forward if there are fewer chain whirlers to just say I'm sorry your deck doesn't work anymore. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is an unfortunate element, but probably true. And especially if blue-white is difficult to play because of the mana, then that reduces the number of wrath effects in the format and could open the door to some of these go-wide strategies being very powerful. Right, right, for sure. Um, in general, we are losing some of the most powerful like mid-range threats and i'm thinking specifically of Glorybringer here which was just kind of the card that you cast on turn five for its entire <laughs> uh tenure yeah. in standard you know the best teamer energy decks were the decks that just maximized their Glorybringer potential now that it's gone we can play other five mana stuff so i know that opens the door for cards like demanding dragon to be the card that you want to slot in we don't have gruel lands yet but maybe eventually something like regisaur alpha I am kind of on board for Carnage Tyrant going forward, hopefully. We'll we'll see. But the absence of Glorybringer definitely opens up the door to five mana plus creature threats that are not quite as powerful as Glorybringer. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Especially in some sort of like Lana Ralph deck where you're accelerating a little bit on mana mm-hmm. to get up to, you know, your like five and six mana slots. Yeah, yeah. There was a really cute green-black mid-range deck that I saw uh, in the 5-0 comp, comp league decks that was just lots of uh, Vine Mares and Carnage Tyrants and Mana Accelerants and ran, you know, a, a fair amount of black removal and also three Trial of Ambition and three Cartouche of Ambition. So you just game one against red-black lay down a Carnage Tyrant on turn 5, and then put a Cartouche of Ambition on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, that'll that'll definitely be game over in a, in a few matchups, for sure. So, not an option going forward, but, you know, who knows, maybe we're going to be putting on Sarah's wings on Carnage Tyrant <laughs> or something like that. Okay, alright, I'm listening, you know. We got Temple Garden, like, it's not impossible, right? Uh, depends what we got going on. We got to. We've also got to replace Chandra somehow. If if there's any reasonable alternative, and so who knows? You know, red decks might lean towards Sarkin or something like that. It's definitely a totally different card from Chandra, but you know, I I wouldn't play another red planeswalker if I have the chance to play Chandra. I'll just do a different thing than what the other planeswalkers are demanding my deck do. So maybe something like Sarkin could work going forward. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that a lot of red decks already should be replacing their Chandras with Rekindling Phoenix, so mm-hmm. I think that that's probably, true. you know, true. just kind of like going to be that four-drop slot moving forward. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, and now now fewer people can make the mistake of of playing more Chandra's than Phoenixes. Yes, <laughs> these days. Yeah, I mean, p- definitely pick up your Phoenixes right now if you can get them for like twenty five bucks. I think that's a good deal because uh, they're only going to get more heavily played going forward. Like I I can virtually promise it. I think. Yeah, I'd I'd be pretty pretty surprised to not see that card continue to be a a, a very popular staple moving forward. Yep. Yep. So yeah, like those are definitely my thoughts going forward, like thinking about what spoilers are going to be exciting to me, like what holes need to be filled, what are the things that I'm sort of looking for. I don't know if you've got any thoughts. Uh, oh, we're also losing Scrap Heaps Grounder. I guess that's a really big individual one. The aggressive decks are going to have to look somewhere else for a, a busted two drop. So, <laughs> Yeah, like the built-in resiliency of these aggro decks is going to be significantly reduced so it'll be interesting to see kind of like what angles the the aggro decks take on moving forward mm-hmm. i wouldn't be surprised to see mono green just continue to be like you know one of the deep default decks moving forward yeah i mean i think that you know in a powered down format especially early on doing a big dumb thing can be very powerful and boy steel leaf champion is a big dumb thing so yes yes it is especially when you cast it on turn two yeah yeah, I mean, Llanowar Elves is probably, because Teferi is going to be so hard to cast, I think Llanowar Elves is, to me, seems like the most powerful card in Standard going forward. Since it's got both Temple Garden and Overgrown Tomb, like, I definitely am looking at, or or maybe just, you know, 23 Forests, who knows, but I'm definitely looking at, at Llanowar Elves very, very carefully uh, going forward and, and keeping that in mind. Uh, when I'm looking at green cards that get spoiled. So that's that's exciting to me. And, you know, playing a monocolor deck in a week one format when people still haven't figured out the appropriate mana bases is, you know, honestly pretty equitable. And, and I, I definitely recommend sticking to something that's a little more simple in, you know, especially like week one formats and stuff. So Right. You you know it's going to work. That's, that's beautiful. Right. Um, though we don't have any deserts to sort of give you that payoff for, you know, not playing any dual lands. But, oh well, I think we'll live. Lower-powered yeah. format. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in general, I am looking forward to a lower-powered format. Uh, that, it, to me, it, it tends to be more fun to, to build and brew in. Uh, it's just so easy for... You get a good idea, and it's just totally invalidated by the deck that's running Rekindling Phoenix and Chandra and Glorybringer. And hopefully... We get a little time before that happens in new standard. You know, and if if history has taught us anything, it, it will happen in standard, mm-hmm. kind of no matter what, just based on, you know, how people decide which decks they want to play right now in, in the information yeah. uh, age that we're living in. But but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited for something fresh and, and something to tinker around with. Yeah, and five sets is a lot fewer than than eight sets. So right, that's a big difference. But so should we look at some of the spoilers we've got from Guilds of Ravnica? Now that we are, you know, in the right mindset and everything. I yeah, I mean, I at least want to talk about one of these in particular, which I which caught my eye immediately and I'm very excited about. Uh, can I uh, can I is, make a guess? Is this a goblin of some sort? It is a goblin All of right. some sort. Tell me about this uh, card. Legion Legion War Boss. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Legion War Boss is a Three mana, two two goblin soldier, two in a red. It has one of the new mechanics. It's uh, called mentor. 
So whenever this creature attacks, put a plus one plus one counter on target attacking creature with less power. Mm -hmm. So Legion Warboss is only a 2-2, two -two, uh, but any other 1-1s one -ones attacking alongside of it are going to get a plus one plus one counter from the mentor ability of Legion Warboss. Mm -hmm. It also says, at the beginning of combat on your turn, create a 1-1 one -one red goblin creature token. That token gains haste until end of turn and attacks this combat if able. Boy, this reminds me of Do something. You, I seem to recall <laughs> in the past a 3-mana 2-2 two -two goblin that made a 1-1 one -one goblin in the beginning of combat and made all the other goblins attack Yeah, was, and was pretty busted was for that a card while any in good? standard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, um, this definitely invites comparison to, to Goblin Rebel Master, for sure. And while I don't think that this card will be... Well, I, I, actually, it's, it's kind of hard to tell, right? Because Goblin Rebel Master was really strong because uh, of the really fast clock that it put on. Mm -hmm. the, the, the damage output for Goblin Rebel Master is 1 into 6 mm -hmm. into... Yeah, it's 8 or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the... The Legion Warboss isn't that far behind. It's Legion Warboss, from from what I can tell, is one into five into uh into seven. Yeah, right. So that's you know that's only like one point of damage behind um, Goblin Rabble Master, and also kind of like distributing the power amongst the the smaller guys and making the one ones bigger instead of making the the Rabble Master slash Warboss mm -hmm. bigger seems to be almost an upside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are definitely game states where you would prefer to have Warboss. Probably on average, you slightly prefer Rabble Master, but we don't have Rabble Master in standard. And so this is definitely just a powerful three mana self contained threat uh, that, uh, you know, maybe we're getting to a point where we're starting to get enough goblins that we want to play. Uh, a goblins deck you know we've got goblin trash master and stuff uh, but even without that you know this guy just is standing in the shoes of a classic powerful token maker and and self-contained threat and really plays out it looks to me pretty similarly so i i don't think you're wrong with your assessment of this card definitely yeah and i'm excited for this card to teach a lot of people about tempo in in these in these red mirrors mm -hmm. um goblin rabble master taught me a lot about tempo and sequencing things kind of like in a you know at first glance strange way to get a, a big advantage i'll never forget this match that i played against a guy and this was back in goblin rabble master lightning strike era of standard yep and i was on the draw so i kind of felt good about being on the draw because typically the play pattern was you hold up your lightning strike on your opponent's third turn so that they can't play rival master and then you can like if they do play the rival master you can kill it and then untap and play your own rival master so i was like excited to be able to do that since i was on the draw and my opener had rival master and lightning strike so i was like all right we did it my opponent goes land go i go land go he goes land go i go land go again and he go he plays his third land and just passes back the turn to me. And I was like, oh, okay. So I untap, draw, play my third land, play my Rabble Master. And he immediately strikes it, untaps, plays his own Rabble Master, and gets value out of it. Yep. And God. I was just like, he had it the whole time. But he knew to not play it into my two mana. Right? And it's just so clear now. But at the time, it was such a huge learning experience for me. Of like, it's it's not always right to just jam your spells. 
And I think that this this card similarly is going to be teaching a lot of people that that valuable lesson, which is, I guess, a little nostalgic for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe, uh, I think that is a great story and uh, uh, super important for developing. I think we saw a similar thing happen on camera. I think we saw Seth get one of his opponents. I mean, maybe maybe he drew in a way that made this, you know, just the way that it, it happened. But I think we saw him sandbag a chain whirler in a pretty insane way. So he was on the draw, and his opponent by turn three had some two mana threat and a bow mat courier in play. And Seth ended up using uh, a two mana removal spell to get rid of the two mana threat, and then a magma spray to get rid of the bow mat courier, and then passed. And then his opponent like tanked for a little bit. And he had a, uh, Seth had a, a Heart of Kieran in play. And so then his opponent tanked a little bit and I think came to the conclusion of, well, if he had a Chain Whirler, he would have just killed this uh, Bomat Courier with it and gotten his value that way instead of spending the Magma Spray on a guy that was going to die to the Chain Whirler anyways. And so then he plays his Chandra, ticks up, and then Seth just untaps, plays a Chain Whirler, Trigger takes Chandra down to four, Cruise Heart of Kieran attacks Chandra down to zero, and just gets a free Chandra out of it. Now, maybe Seth mm-hmm. drew the Chain Whirler that turn. I wasn't super, I wasn't able to see his hand on, on the stream, but I think that he actually sequenced it in a way uh, to get his opponent. And uh, I, I think that because the Chain Whirler is valuable there, both against Chandra and against Rekindling Phoenix, it worked out really well. But it was not the most intuitive way to sequence that. There was an obvious thing, which is use this comes into play trigger to get your free card, and that's plenty of value. But he completely turned around the the pace of the game and the tempo advantage by sandbagging that, that Chain Whirler. And I think looking for opportunities to do that, um, just like your opponent did to you a couple of years ago with that lightning strike, can can get you into games that you would have been behind in for a long time. And so that's, I think that's a really good lesson to, to try to internalize. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the one card I wanted to talk about here. There, there are definitely some other interesting cards. Um, I don't know how much we want to, we don't have to talk about the spoilers right now. Yeah. I mean, I've pulled up a few. We don't need to talk about everyone. Um, I am pretty excited about Conclave Tribunal, which is three and a white for an enchantment with Convoke that is pretty much just an Oblivion Ring, um, like new templating Oblivion Ring, so you can kill it in response to the trigger or whatever. But, you know, we're, we're losing Cast Out, and, you know, Conclave Tribunal is clearly worse than, like, Ixalan's Binding in a control deck. But, boy, in, like, a token deck, if you can put two tokens into play and then cast them to pay for two mana of this spell, like, you're getting a pretty solid discount. If you can you know use them to to pay for three or all even like sometimes you'll just tap four creatures and get this free spell and a couple of them had summoning sickness or whatever and i foresee this being a player in some pretty huge tempo swings going forward in this format i hate to keep on bringing up the same standard format but uh remember (laughs) uh stoke the flames oh my yeah exactly (laughs) like this is so similar right it feels a lot like stoke the flames yeah, so, right, it's it's kind of like another four-mana answer spell. So if, if we do have things, you know, like uh, like a bunch of, like, soldier tokens or something to, to pair with this guy, mm-hmm. uh, I agree. I definitely think it would be 
kind of perfect for those token strategies and huge tempo swing a lot of the time. Yeah. And I mean, being sorcery speed probably just makes it a lot more fair. You can't do like Hordling Outburst, double block a guy, stoke the flames, tapping all three of my goblins in one mountain. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That nonsense can't happen with this card. But I, I think we will probably see plenty of nonsense happen with this card. Yeah, still a lot of nonsense. You know, it turns any, like, the two mana white make two one ones like, free, essentially, the turn that you want to cast this. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, stuff like that. Wait, do we have one of those? Because Servo Exhibition is rotating out. Um, I don't know if we're going to have one of those. So we have Sap Rolling Migration in a a green-white deck, which is clearly, you know, this is a Selesnia card. Yeah. There's also... One of these spoilers we've got is Amara, Soul of the Accord, which is green-white for a 2-2 legendary creature. Uh, whenever she becomes tapped, you create a 1-1 white soldier creature token with lifelink. So, you know, if you have a couple of playable Convoke cards in your deck, um, then she yeah. starts pumping out tokens even when you can't attack with her, and that's quite good. Very very powerful, for sure. Yeah. Um and, you know, any deck that's running this card is probably also running Anthem Effects, and it's much easier to attack with a 3-3 than a 2-2 and, and get value out of it. So, uh, you know, she just goes really well getting followed up by a Benelish Marshal or something like that. So I, I think this card will see play. Yeah. I mean, if if there's a green-white token strategy that plays Convoke cards, I think uh, Emera is definitely going to be one of the better cards in that deck. Yeah, clearly designed for it. Um, we're getting our Cancel variant, which is... Uh, one of the best ones we've ever seen. Uh, Sinister Sabotage, one blue-blue for an instant counter-target spell. Surveil 1, which is scry, but you can put it in the graveyard, basically. Yeah, Surveil is one of the new mechanics where you look at the top and you can put it on top or into your graveyard, which is uh, feels kind of like better than scry a lot of the time. Oh, yeah, it's significantly uh, you know, cards better. Cards in graveyards are, are often resources, right, that, that certain cards can take advantage of. Yep, even if it's just Search for Ascanta, this can get you one closer to Search for Ascanta, which is great. Yeah, pretty perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, yeah, uh, Demir... I think is going to have some some graveyard synergies. I think Search for Escanta is about as as though it hasn't already taken off. Uh, but that card is going to have some some afterburners on it. I think, given the the mechanics we're we're seeing in this format, in this new set. Yeah. So, uh, get ready for more Search for Escanta. I guess. Um, Wee. <laughs> Uh, that's why I don't yeah. think that this card is playable. I've seen people a little bit excited for Firemind's Research, which is an enchantment for blue-red uh, that gets a charge counter whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, and then you can pay one in a blue and remove two charge counters to draw a card, or one in a red and remove five charge counters to deal five damage to any target. I just can't ever see putting this in my deck when I could put Search for Escanta in my deck instead. Yeah, it's it's effectively doing the same thing that Search for Scan is trying to do, but significantly worse at it. Yeah, it's just really mana intensive. Whereas like Search for Escanta refunds your mana once you flip it. You get a whole extra it. land. Yeah. It's crazy. It's just the card yeah. is nuts. And you know, like I I would consider this card if Search for Escanta wasn't around. Uh, I probably you know it's just too mana intensive and probably wouldn't end up on it. But it would at least be a thought. Search for Escanta just makes cards like this not something that you can consider right well cool yeah that's probably enough i think that that covers kind of most of the exciting cards 
that I've seen so far. Yeah, and and we'll we'll keep an eye on spoilers, but you know, ultimately we are going to do our full on set reviews, so we'll go pretty in depth on on the stuff we yep. think is good on that episode. Um, so shall keep we an eye out for that? Should be fun. Shall we move on to our Patreon question of the week? Let's do it. So this question is asked by Dubes, and he's asking. Do you believe that most players have a bias towards playing fair decks in formats like Modern as opposed to unfair because they feel it gives them more agency in the game rather than playing a deck that can lose to itself? And if so, do you think this is a leak and something that people should be working to correct? So I know you had some thoughts about uh, choosing fair decks uh, in Modern in particular. Or kind of almost just in general. I, I kind of had this conversation, you know, a little bit um, in the past couple of weeks, mm-hmm. pretty frequently with my team and some other s- stuff, where I recognize that in the past, I personally have a history of playing these unfair decks that kind of, like, you know, went on their own a little bit. Um, and kind of a consequence of that, though, is that these unfair decks do lose to themselves some percentage of the time. And while while you can definitely get a, a deck building advantage over your opponent if your if your deck is just gonna have a higher win percentage on average you should definitely be looking for that but I've actually kind of like come to the conclusion that for me personally I want to start transitioning more towards these quote-unquote fair decks that have a lot more control over what happens in the game mm-hmm. um, I want to start playing more, you know, interactive games, games that go longer, games where I can utilize a skill advantage over my opponents. I think that that's, you know, that's kind of like always been, traditionally been something that, like, you know, we've seen like really heavy hitter pro players lean towards. You know, it's always kind of been the known that that pro players typically want to utilize their skill advantage and, and play these like control decks because that gives them more opportunities to, you know, outplay their opponents. Um, and I've typically always shied away from doing stuff like that. But, you know, I think that I want to really dig a little deeper into trying that out for myself, right? I, you know, I've never really, you know, tried to utilize that as much. I've, I've always kind of been more of like a, a, a brewer type where I like play decks that I think that are just going to be naturally better against the field and are going to um, lean less on technical play but i want to kind of like challenge myself personally to try to increase my technical play game and while i i'm sure that i'm going to initially start losing percentage points because i like make mistakes with these technical decks i think that it's just going to be good for me in the long run mm-hmm. but that's just kind of like speaking on my own personal preference recently but i i guess to kind of answer the question i, I definitely do believe that a lot of players do have a bias towards fair decks uh, but you know, it, I think the players just have a are always going to have a bias towards a particular style of play, and you know, some people are going to want to play fair decks, and some people are going to want to play unfair decks. Uh, but there there are pros and cons to, to to both. You know, the con to the unfair decks is that you know, yeah, sometimes you you lose matches that you just didn't really have any control over, where you you know maybe you did everything you could, but you just your your deck had a certain level of inconsistency. Or your opponent had a certain level of preparedness that you just kind of couldn't overcome through any sort of, you know, in, in, in-game in decision-making. And uh, I feel like I've definitely been running into some of that recently, kind of particularly with humans. 
And that's, you know, a lot of people ask me why I haven't played humans recently at all. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of for a similar reason of, like, you know, I think that a lot of the time when you're playing humans, your opponent just, like, has a certain level of preparedness for for your deck just because it's clearly the most popular deck in modern right now. And and a lot of the time that's just kind of hard to overcome through any sort of, like, you know, decision-making that I can make in the game. And and that is a feel-bad for me, and I, I've been kind of shying away from that. I think, at least for me personally, I'm, I'm definitely going to be moving more towards decks that that give me a lot of agency in the game uh, to be able to to make plays and stuff. Because I, you know, I've been playing Magic for a long time now. I I, I feel like I have a decent idea of ways to outplay my opponents and stuff like that. But I've definitely noticed that, given my deck selection recently, I haven't given myself the opportunity to try to do that at all. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I want to start you know trying to do that more. Gotcha. You know, we'll see how that goes, and I'm sure I'm gonna I'm gonna lose percentage points initially when I am like you know transitioning back towards like more of a traditional you know control style stuff. I, I clearly from the Legacy Grand Prix last week and have a lot to learn about time management. <laughs> um, that's something that I remember needing to focus on a lot a long time ago when I was really really grinding the Star City Circuit, playing like. <laughs> Like uh, mono green devotion, if you remember that. Oh, you know, yes. I I remember having to really work on time management. But recently, I've been playing all these like blitzy aggro combo decks that haven't needed to worry about that at all, <laughs> and I've kind of lost that skill, right? Yeah. So these are you know these are things that I'm kind of been thinking about recently, and like you know figuring out which areas of playing Magic I need to polish for myself personally, and I think that technical play is definitely one of those skills that I want to work on. Gotcha. So I don't know, I, I think in modern, you know, like the, the question itself is, do you believe that the reason that people have a bias towards fair decks is because they think it gives them more agency? And I mean, I think number one, I think it does tend to give them more agency. You have more decision points in a deck that's playing Serum Visions. Uh, you have more decision points in a deck that's using Fatal Pushes or Lightning Bolts defensively than a deck that is... I, I mean, I guess there's a lot of decision points in Storm, but yeah, your deck sometimes just trips over itself, and that happens less with Jund-style decks or Jeskai-style decks mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but it, it it should be noted that I think a fair deck isn't really the most accurate description of a deck that gives you a lot of agency in the game. Mm-hmm. Because you bring up the example of Storm, and particularly Modern Storm, I think ha- is one of the decks that has... Quite a few decisions. The most points. agency yeah. in the game. Yeah. And you do get a lot of, of percentage points based around, you know, your understanding of a particular matchup over your opponent's understanding of a particular matchup. So I don't think that you should quantify like the decks that give you agency in the game based on whether or not they're like quote unquote fair or not. Yeah. But that's probably you know, true. The, a deck like you know, a deck like humans doesn't really give you a lot of agency, but a deck like like Storm or Yeah. And I guess like Kark Clan Ironworks Amulet and Amulet Titan give you lots of agency, lots of right, exactly, making. exactly. Um, so don't get caught up in like archetypes as much as just like you know which which decks give you a lot more play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I think that biases that players have in general tend more, especially when it comes to modern. Uh, any bias that somebody has, I think, can mostly boil down to what decks they have played and have practice with. And, mm-hmm. you know, people can justify preferring types of decks any way that they want to. But, like, I don't... 
like I don't think that like Caleb Shear is ever going to tell you like these are the reasons that modern is the or that these are the reasons that Storm is the best deck in every format. I think he'll admit that like Storm is the deck he has the most experience with, is extremely comfortable with. It's going to give him the best chance to do well because he's really good with it, and it's you know the the bias that's there if you break it down is just towards the deck that you know how to play and i think generally if somebody tells you that they have a bias towards fair decks it's because they've played a lot of fatal pushes in modern and they're really comfortable casting fatal push in modern um more than you know any particular hey i want to be the person who's making decisions in the game yeah like with my deck selection choices going forward this might be a little bit of a tangent but one of the things that I have felt lately is like I've played some of the like top five decks in modern and tried to be like all right I'm gonna be a good player I'm gonna make a good decision I'm gonna play one of the best decks I'm gonna play humans or I'm gonna play hollow one and I'm gonna ride the power of those decks to victory and one of the problems that I found is just everybody knows how to play against those decks and uh yeah I I think maybe you can retake some of that uh, like comfort level equity by playing a deck that people aren't comfortable playing against. And uh, I think KCI is still one of those decks, and that's where some of its percentage <laughs> yeah. comes from. I think Blue-White Control, honestly, is kind of one of those decks, because a lot of people playing creature decks uh, don't play around Wrath particularly well, and so you can get points there. Um, and so, you know, I'm... I'm just going to play Living End at GP Stockholm uh, because in my experience, people play poorly against it and I'd like to buy back some of those equity points for at least one tournament and we'll see what I do yeah, yeah. from there. Um, one of the things that I'm also doing is I'm doing a lot of testing with it because I am going to write like a, a Living End uh, like deck guide, primer, sideboard guide sort of thing. Ooh, okay. Because uh, a couple cool. of people have asked me about it and I've wanted to do it for a while and this is a good excuse to put in all the work um, and do it but um you know living end is a I, like it's an unfair deck it does a thing that's not fair it doesn't beat the other unfair decks because the thing it's doing is only powerful along a very specific axis but um you know this is where my biases sort of lie like number one i am experienced and comfortable with this deck in particular but the place that i want to be is playing a deck that when my opponent sits down and shuffles up and gets their hand and then sees what my first two plays are they don't just have this roadmap in their head of how they're going to beat me they have to make decisions that they maybe haven't ever made before and you know sometimes that's not a place you can be maybe living end just isn't playable and i shouldn't be doing this or and in standard like it's very difficult to roll up with a deck that your opponent just uh, is going to have to do all of that processing on their own to, to figure out how to beat you. Um, and of course, this is not a strategy that's going to work against the Reed Dukes and the Seth Manfields and Owen Turtonwalds of the world. This is not a strategy that I would employ at the Pro Tour or anything like that. I think playing at a GP or an Open, playing a deck that people are not comfortable playing against is a way of, you know, riding on that, you know, comfort level experience line. So probably have removed myself a little bit from this question that was originally asked, but these are things that I've been thinking about lately. <laughs> well, cool. And, you know, that's just kind of always something that the, the Patreon questions seem to do, which yeah. I like. And, I mean, I think the way that it relates to this is this is why I like playing unfair decks in general, 
because most mm. of the time the types of decks that people are uh, uncomfortable playing against tend to be decks that are doing unfair things even if i don't know exactly what my line should be against jund like they're not gonna untap and just kill me they're gonna like play a Bloodbraid elf that like does something and so the threat of a deck being able to just untap and kill you uh like that's why my bias is sort of towards unfair decks because it takes advantage of where people are uncomfortable um so yeah that's that's how it relates back to the question i think yeah i mean that all makes a lot of sense and i um you know definitely the the whole concept of of making your opponent make decisions that they've never made before is uh definitely a really strong you know argument to play any deck for sure Mm -hmm. yep so we'll see how that goes uh gonna be putting work into it uh have been putting work into it and uh, i'm starting to come to a 75 that i'm actually pretty comfortable with in a metagame that like on paper is kind of un unkind to to the deck <laughs> but sure. but because yeah, because yeah. the paper the on paper metagame is never what you actually play against in modern so uh, just play what you're good at man and and it'll all be okay yeah i i agree for sure cool um all right well anything else that we need to cover while we're here no i don't think i have anything else i think that should be about it for the day thanks so much to everybody for listening uh thanks especially to our patrons really appreciate you guys uh if any of you who are not patrons yet would like to support us you can head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast or head over to our website mtggrindcast.com where we've got links to that we've also got links to collins's coaching services which i assume are still going strong going well yeah definitely uh if you if you haven't already you should you should check it out and give me give me a ring I'll be happy to work with you. And we are also on Twitter. I am tweeting from at MTG underscore Grindcast. And Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Thanks again for listening. And have a great week. All right. Peace.